Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 22, Itchy and Scratchy and the Polish Government in Exile. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Serve lemonade when we serve lemonade. Slam brains in car doors when we slam brains in car doors. Today I'm going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 9, Itchy and Scratchy in March. That was aired on December 20th, 1990, two weeks after Bart the Daredevil, and it was the last episode shown in 1990. Mm. And I'm going to be talking about Poland, specifically the government that was exiled from Poland following the invasion by Nazi Germany in 1939. It was known as the Polish government in exile, and it remained in exile throughout the 20th century before finally being dissolved on December 22nd, 1990, two days after Itchy and Scratchy and Marge was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. And somebody did just that. We've got a further Peter Alice fact. Oh, have we? Yep. Brilliant. I didn't know this. From a long-time listener and long-time contributor, Tim Worthington, um, who stumbled across a guest list to Retrospecticus superstar Margaret Thatcher's 1987 general election party. Basically, someone in the Conservative Party suggested this list of the great and the good. Margaret's husband, Dennis, has had at it with a red pen, marking with a question mark those people who he believed had slighted or publicly insulted his wife and the party, (laughs) and using a tick to denote those who he wanted to keep on the list, with more than one tick meaning, and I quote Dennis here, superperson and a known friend, and wonderful to have them here. Right. In the two or more ticks club, we have Ronnie Corbett, Penelope Keith, Tim Rice, Judith Chalmers, <laughs> Eric Sykes with a record four, and with a slightly more modest three, Peter Alice. Ah, oh, right. So, so, so Peter Alice, sexist golf commentator and big friend of the Thatchers. Yes. That doesn't surprise me at all. No, no. Uh, I was going to say our boy Peter Alice there, but I, I, I think we need to uh, disavow any connection with uh, with Mr. Alice. We do, we do. But, right, I'll be explicit here. I want made-up facts about Peter Alice. <laughs> I want people to just, just make up stuff about Peter Alice and send it in, and we'll read it out. Best one wins credit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what could be better than sweet, sweet credit? Exactly. So, this aired on December the 20th, 1990. But Gareth, I hear you cry. At that stage, what was the UK number one? Well, at that stage, that particular stage, it was still Ice Ice Baby. But number two, we've got Cliff Richard with Saviour's Day. Oh, no. Which just the very week after this would pip Mr. Ice and... The Righteous Brothers' second offering of the year, You've Lost That Loving Feeling 1990, which was also in the first ITV showing of Top Gun that pushed the re-release of Take My Breath Away up the charts. Do you see, listeners? Do you see the web I weave? I'm not just mucking about here, despite all evidence to the contrary. To Christmas number one, thus forever cementing Cliff's links with that pointless annual achievement, despite having literally half the Christmas number ones the Beatles did. Almost as if it wasn't a big thing back when the Beatles did it. Yeah. And that the media blew it up since. Yeah. But it's like, how bad was music back then? It's like when you say it all almost in one sentence. It's like... And Saviour's Day, it's a toss-up for me whether that's worse than mistletoe and wine. But It's worse than mistletoe and wine. There is no (laughs) doubt in my mind. Now, I don't like mistletoe and wine, but this is just tripe. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute smug, soulless, bland, um, and a, such a bald-faced attempt at cashing in on mistletoe wine in the first place. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any... I can't even remember the lyrics to Saviour's Day, but there's something that always stands out about mistletoe and wine, and it's the lyric, 
with logs on the fire and gifts on the tree. You don't hang your Christmas presents in the tree. They're under the tree. Absolutely. You're not going to hang a BMX bike off a Christmas tree or a Super Nintendo or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Nonsense. Either that or you're getting rubbish presents. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Unless he was... <sighs> Unless it was set in the past, it was going for the whole oranges and walnuts business. But I don't think that was the... I think it was just to make it scan. Yeah, and yeah. You're, you're right, Tom. I, I'm, I'm, I can feel my indignance rising now. But the thing is, you could make it scan. You could, say, you could sing... With logs on the fire, gifts under the tree, time to... Yeah, it could work. You've just solved that song. Yeah. You're a better songwriter than whoever wrote that for Cliff yeah, Richard. Yeah, it, it's completely unnecessary and. Get rid of the and, it works. <sighs> Idiots. So, I'm quite glad to, that you had a bit of a rant there, because I've got <laughs> literally nothing to say about Saviour's Day, except how much I dislike it. I've already yeah. done that. So, I just thought I would ask you, to fill a bit of time, um, what is your favourite and or most memorable Christmas number one? Oh, well, I don't know if it was at number one, but easily my favourite Christmas song is Christmas Rapping by The Waitresses. Yes. Don't, don't know if that was number one or not, but it's, it's great. It's got, a, it's got a great beat, a catchy melody, and, a, and a lovely, it's a lovely little song with a story. Yeah. The sort of yeah. thing Carl Pilkington would, would enjoy. I, I, I really like that song. I don't think it was Christmas number one, but it, in terms of Christmas songs, it's certainly up there in terms of quality. Yeah. Um, I think my favourite Christmas number one, I'm desperately just doing a quick search of the archives in my brain at the moment to make <laughs> sure I haven't forgotten one that I prefer, um, was uh, The Power of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, yeah. which uh, was, a, 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 a really good song, and B, because it was Christmas number one, and it's vaguely slow and it had a bit of a Christmassy video, it basically is a Christmas song now. It's mm. been adopted as a Christmas song. You hear it on Christmas compilations. Okay. And it's always good when you do, because it's it's a... It's a slight respite from the constant jingle bells, santery ridiculousness um, of of seasonal music, and that bloody Coldplay one. <laughs> oh God! For me, the worst Christmas number one of modern times was that cover of Mad World that was on the Donnie Darko film. Yes, because it's just depressing. Unless we forget that modern times uh, includes Mr. Blobby at number one. <laughs> <laughs> that was just funny. I, I'd listened to that ten times before I listened to Gary Jules's Mad World again. <laughs> anyway, we've got off on one a little bit about Christmas number one there, so, so let me steer us back yes. towards uh, the greener pastures of The Simpsons. Uh, the production number of this episode was 7F09, and the writer was John I Don't Exist Schwarzwelder, as we discussed at quite some length in episode five, Bart the First McDonald's in Moscow. Yeah, and there's a bit of a moral quandary in this one, so it's... It stinks as Schwarzwelder. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, US viewership was 22.2 million viewers, making it 34th in the ratings for the week and the highest rated Fox show, which at this stage isn't that much of a surprise. The chalkboard gag was, I will not pledge allegiance to Bart, which doesn't make sense as Bart is writing it. I assume they mean, I will not encourage people to pledge allegiance to me. But it's yeah. just it's just wrong. It's... Was... Was that a thing back then? Were, were, were American school kids, when they're doing the Pledge of Allegiance, were they going, I place allegiance to Bart? Was, was that happening? It sounds like a thing that might have happened. No, I mean, I, I think they just would have gone with the traditional Pledge of Allegiance. Hey, America, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind, America. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, so that one just doesn't work for me. But the, the couch gag is, the couch is missing. And it struck me that this was one of the first ones that played... Uh, in a larger way with people's expectations mm. of the couch. So, you know, it's, uh, things are moving apace. Mm -hmm. So, what actually happens? Well, Homer encounters Marge making his absolute favourite, pork chops, as we learned in Call of the Simpsons, of course. Despite her protestations that the extra ingredient is care, it appears to be rosemary, thyme, marjoram, chervil, turmeric and MSG. <laughs> Given she has at least six spices... Homer volunteers to build a spice rack at exactly the wrong time. For in the living room, the kids, including Maggie, are watching the Itchy and Scratchy show, which we thought had the full intro for the first time. Yes, I think so. I don't remember seeing it before. I, I could well be proved wrong on this. Uh, eels to the usual place, uh, yeah, yeah. if that's the case. 
We're going to see 10 different itchy and scratchy segments in this, oh, which true. is possibly a record. Uh, the first uh, shown here is from the episode Hold That Feline, in which they are playing American football and the ball is a bomb. And Scratchy catches the ball and is blown up. And then a load of dogs jump on him. <laughs> Homer goes into the garage to use his entirely unused tools, many still with price tags on, referring to a very convenient book called Volume 1 Spice Racks as he goes. And I just noticed today that Volume 2 Knickknacks is next to it. And mm -hmm. Volume 3, although it's partially off screen, appears to be Trojan Horses. Well, that's, that's your advanced book. Yeah. Is that how woodwork goes? I've never really done it. You go from your spice racks to your knickknacks to your Trojan horses. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did DT at school. That's that's exactly how it works. Excellent. I, I, I never made a box that you could open, but uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The kids who were really good were making Trojan horses left, right and centre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, I know there were a fair few about in the 80s, so mm -hmm. that must be where they came from. Um, much like the barbecue he will make in season 10, episode 19, Mom and Pop Art, it doesn't go well. But he's surprisingly pleased with the results. Until Maggie hits him on the head with a hammer, knocking him out. With Homer recuperating from his broken head on the sofa, Marge wonders what could have caused such behaviour. At that moment, an itchy and scratchy episode called Kitchen Cut-Ups comes on the television, where the two attack each other with meat-tenderising hammers before graduating to stabbing with butcher knives. Upon seeing this, Maggie brandishes a pencil, the link is made, and the Simpson children are banned from watching the show, despite Lisa's worries that they will grow up without a sense of humour and be robots. Using their noodles, Bart goes to Milhouse's place, and Lisa goes to Janie's to watch Messenger of Death, uh, Tom's favourite Itchy and Scratchy episode. Yeah, definitely. In which Postman Itchy simply blows the skin <laughs> from Scratchy's face with a bazooka, and then his head falls off. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I'm... Sh I'm I don't know if I'm getting the episodes mixed up, but I'm sure they did a version of that in series one. But I might be wrong. But yeah, I just love the bluntness and simplicity of it. It's like, knock at the door, door opens, close up a scratchy, zooms out, and you see uh, Itchy there with, with the bazooka, and yeah, he just shoots him in the face. Yeah. It's amazing. He has enough time to aim as well before Scratchy realises what's going yes. on, which I think just adds to it. Um, <laughs> Ironically, though, that's also on their home television set as Marge and the couch-bound Homer, who has just had to endure the most embarrassing sicky call of his life to explain that he'd been beaten up by his baby, are taking notes. Tom, I've got another of my famous ad hoc quizzes for you oh, here. When yeah, Marge is taking those notes, what incidents has she made a note of? I can't remember. It's, it, it's stuff like dogs disemboweled, cats decapitated... Dogs boiled alive, that sort of thing. You're absolutely along the right right lines. Yeah. But I, I will uh, enlighten us all. So, cats blowing up, mice launched, which seems <laughs> quite vague to me. Yeah. Um, dogs tricked, which is just cruel. Gophers buried alive, which it now occurs to me wouldn't be that much of a problem for a gopher. <laughs> oh, that's um, great. Uh, eyes knocked out, disembowelings. And most spectacular of all, brains slammed in car door. Wow. Wow. They were really good at the freeze frame jokes, weren't they? Yes. Brain, brain slammed in car door is it's almost like something from Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> it's something they definitely couldn't get away with actually showing. Um, yeah. Uh, so another itchy and scratchy sequence is also shown assumedly also from Messenger of Death, where Itchy knocks Scratchy's eyeballs out of his head with a sledgehammer. So that's why Marge was uh, ticking eyes knocked out at that point. Uh, then hands him two lit bombs to replace them. <laughs> Scratchy seems fine with this at first, even going so far as to sit down before a mirror and start brushing his hair, before somehow noticing the problem by somehow looking in the mirror, <laughs> at which point the bombs detonate. Brilliant. <laughs> um... Marge decides to write a letter to the studio, asking them to tone down the psychotic violence. Roger Myers Jr., head of INS Studios, personally dictates a less than complimentary letter to Marge and the horse she rode in on, though does at least include a personally autographed photo of America's favourite cat and mouse team. They're not Eastern Europe's favourites, though. That's Worker and Parasite. <laughs> Marge is sufficiently angry to form an action group. Snuh. <laughs> Springfieldians for non-violence, understanding and helping. Her campaign gathers pace, 
though this leads to her family feeling neglected as they wade through pee-filled TV dinners. After Snuh stage a protest on Krusty's show, the cartoon staff are forced to rule out cartoonish assassination attempts, but they do move on to character assassination, with a Marge-like squirrel being decapitated in the latest episode of Itchy and Scratchy. Undaunted, Marge steps up to the plate on Smartline, Channel 6's debate show, whose panel includes... <sighs> Dr. Marvin Monroe. Mm. Oh, and during that show we see a brief clip of Itchy detonating Scratchy's grave, lighting his still-screaming skeleton on fire. Yeah, that's a weird one. Four left to go. After Smartline, the screwballs speak, and INS Studios give in and make non-violent cartoons, with Marge as story consultant. We see some of these cartoons, starting with the classic Porch Pals. Lemonade? <laughs> Please. <laughs> Plus uh, one of them dancing and one with Scratchy reading Itchy a bedtime story. Clearly much higher quality stuff. But the kids disagree, and freed of television's siren song, they emerge blinking into the outside world. But trouble is brewing in Florence. Michelangelo's Dave is going on tour to New York, Springfield, and, if they have time, Chicago, Boston, and LA. <laughs> Snuh regroups to suppress David's doodle, but Marge is soft on full frontal nudity, leading her back to Smartline, where Dr. Monroe notes that freedom of expression should mean just that, and Marge is forced to agree. Mm. Itchy and Scratchy go back to their violent ways, and we see our final segment, with them aiming bigger and bigger and bigger guns at each other until Scratchy is shot into the sun. Maggie then shoots a photo of Homer with a suction dart. Not the last time we'll see her sling a gun, but that's another story. Mm. And that's about it. Yes. Another great episode. Oh, really good. Really good. And the first episode that featured something that in this day and age is very what we might call memeable. The lemonade please scene. <laughs> One of my favourite variations on that is um, uh, Scratchy has an American flag over his head and he's going, more Palestinian land? <laughs> And, and, and then it's and then Itchy's face is replaced by that of Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> and he's going, please. So yeah, that's awesome. So, would you like to hear about some uh, character debuts? Oh yes, please. Obviously, there's there's a big one in this. It, it's uh, somebody we'll see a few times, and they're going to have a real impact on the show. I speak, of course, of Corporal Punishment. <laughs> okay, I've got nothing for that one, but we will see him again alongside yep. many other sideshows at Krusty's funeral, but let's let's leave that for when yep. it occurs. Roger Myers Jr., chairman of Itchy and Scratchy Studios, makes his debut. He is the son of Itchy and Scratchy's apparent creator, Roger Myers Sr., who is a thinly veiled, or sometimes not at all veiled, <laughs> parody of Walt Disney, right down to the chronic freezing and anti-Semitism. Yep. Jr. has run the studio since his father's death. He is cynical, greedy, and short-tempered, sometimes to hilarious effect, such as in the partially censored letter he sends to Marge in this episode. He's voiced by Alex Rocco, originally named Alessandro Federico Petricconi Jr., who, perhaps unsurprisingly, is an Italian-American actor who, contextually unsurprisingly, was in The Godfather. Though oddly, as Jewish mobster Mo Green, rather than any of the many Italian parts available. He was also in The Wedding Planner and That Thing You Do, which is actually a surprisingly good film, the latter of those, and was apparently paid $1 million to record a mere eight lines for Disney Pixar's A Bug's Life. Wow. Nice work if you can get it. Of more interest to me, though, is his appearance as Cory Maddox in Russ Mayer's excellently kitsch bike-exploitation film Motor Psycho. <laughs> and he was also in two episodes of Batman, though sadly not as the guest villain. Myers Jr. will reappear in any episode that explores the lore and ongoing creation of Itchy and Scratchy. So particularly plays big parts in Season 7, Episode 18, The Day the Violence Died, and Season 8, Episode 14, The Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie Show. <laughs> You'd assume he probably won't have any more speaking parts, as Alex Rocco died on 18 July 2015. Except that the character has also been voiced by Hank Azaria in some episodes for which presumably Rocco was unable to appear. 
such as Season 4, Episode 19, The Front. INS Studios is multi-purpose. Often used to lampoon Disney with its theme parks and frozen executives, although how much more of that we'll see in the future given recent business dealings remains to be seen. Mm. But it can also be used as a metaphor for The Simpsons in a very meta exploration of the show's relationship with its own fans. Along with the Krusty the Clown show, it's also used to lampoon lazy writing and low production standards. Worth noting that The Simpsons itself had obviously been a controversial show at this point, with bannings of t-shirts in schools and, coming soon, a broadside from the President of the United States of America himself. One wonders if Lisa's robot comment in the show is a pointed rebuttal to the Ban Bart Brigade. Hmm. Are you ready to close with some did you knows? Oh yes. Right, get ready for the most obvious did you know ever. <laughs> the bit where Maggie hits Homer with a hammer is a shot-by-shot homage to the shower scene in Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film Psycho. Although Janet Lee's character gets stabbed rather than clubbed in that version. And dies. It's a great scene though, and they really put in the setup to make it work, like the staples holding the tablecloth on. By the way, this sequence doesn't make as much sense after Season 8, Episode 3, The Homer They Fall wherein we find out that Homer has a layer of fluid around his brain that is thicker than normal, allowing him to take more punishment than others without being knocked out. Why don't we say Maggie got a lucky shot in and leave it at that? Yeah. Or a wizard did it. (laughs) The three people pictured with Roger Myers Jr. when he is asking Marge for suggestions are caricatures of Rich Moore, David Silverman and Wes Archer, all of whom are animators and directors who worked on The Simpsons. And now get ready for me to mangle some German pronunciation. The music that is played when Springfield's children go outside to play is the first movement of Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, called... Oh God, here we go. Erwachen hetera empfindungen bei der Ankunft auf dem Lande. Right. Okay. If I've not done that right, don't correct me. Well... well. (laughs) Wait and see what I've got to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that loosely translates as, and this is probably what I should have just left it as, awakening of cheerful feelings on arrival in the countryside. It was used in Disney's 1940 musical-ish animated film Fantasia, and also in the 1973 dystopian sci-fi film Soylent Green. Fantasia will later be repurposed as Scratchtasia, in Season 6, Episode 4, Itchy and Scratchy Land. And Soylent Green is referenced in Season 4, Episode 6, Itchy and Scratchy the Movie. Spooky, huh? Is it? Yes. In the uh, section of the future, in the end, when Bart is uh, Supreme Chief Justice of the... Sorry, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and they finally go to the cinema to watch the Itchy and Scratchy movie... Um, Soylent Green is one of the things that's on offer in the snack bar. Oh, I see, right. Yeah. Okay, didn't know that. So there we go. There's there's a, a big link between that song I'm not going to attempt to pronounce again and Itchy and Scratchy. Oh, very good. And that's the end of that. And that's the end of 1990 for me. Yes. But there's still some for you. Yes, there is some exciting end of 1990 history. So I'm talking about Poland. Now, Poland is one of those countries, you look at it on the map and go... Wow, that country must have had a complicated history. In this case, you'd be completely right. So these days, Poland is bordered by Germany to the west, the Czech Republic, or if you prefer, Czechia, and Slovakia to the south, Belarus and Ukraine to the east, Lithuania to the northeast, and the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad is also to the northeast. These borders have changed a lot over the years, And if you look at a map of the world from around World War I, you'll see that most of the countries I just mentioned didn't even exist. I'll be going over the history of Poland and the region in general, from its height of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the tumultuousness of the two world wars, the Cold War oppression of the 20th century, to EU membership in the 21st. But first, a warning. Those of you who have listened to the show before will know that I have a problem pronouncing Eastern European words. And Poland rivals Hungary in the difficulty-to-pronounce states. For example, Poland's seventh-largest city is Szczecin, which is spelt S-Z-C-Z-E-C-I-N. Yeah, okay, I don't think I'd have got there from that. Yeah, yeah. 
So if I trip over my pronunciations more than usual in this episode, I apologise. So the first thing I want to talk about is a bit of Origins mythology. So there's a tale in Slavic mythology about three brothers, and this is going back centuries. It's one of those stories that all Polish children know. So the three brothers were leaders in Central Europe, and they were looking to take their people to a new place to settle. The first brother, called Rus, takes his people east and founds Russia. The second was called Czech, and he took his people west, becoming the founder of the Czech people. The third, called Lech, and not Pole, annoyingly, uh, he went north, and they kept walking until one evening they came upon a great white eagle perched in a tree. The eagle spread its wings and looked magnificent against the setting sun. Lech and his people took this to be a good omen and settled there, founding the town of Gnezo, which translates as Nest. And the reason I'm telling you this is because it pertains to Poland's flag. So Poland's flag consists of two horizontal stripes, the top one being white and the bottom one being red. The white is for the eagle and the red for sunset. Ah. Okay. So a few episodes we were talking about Japan and how Japan's flag represents Japan being land of the rising sun. So if anything, Poland is the land of the setting sun. Right, okay. So there you go. So on to a bit of actual history. So around the 10th century, Poland was populated by various tribes. And during this time, the Pius dynasty emerged. The first king of Poland was Mieszko I, who converted to Christianity after marrying Princess Dubravka of Bohemia. He began converting the population in what became known as the Baptism of Poland. He was succeeded by his son Boleslaw the Brave. And hold on to your hats, there are some cracking epithets coming up. Ah, oh, brilliant. Yep. He was the first to be officially crowned King of Poland, and he extended the territories of his father and fought wars with the Kingdom of Germany. After the rule of Boleslaw the Brave, Poland was overextended and the monarchy collapsed. This loss of power is summed up nicely by the name of the king who died in 1058, as he went by the name of Boleslaw the Forgotten. Ooh. There's even doubts about his very existence. I think I'd rather be a battle decliner than forgotten. Yeah, yeah. But he was followed by Casimir the Restorer, who was famed for taking old furniture and bringing it back to its former glory. (laughs) No, No, I mean, he restored the power of the monarchy and introduced heraldry to Poland. He was succeeded by his son, Boleslaw II, who went by the epithet The Generous. (laughs) You don't hear that much in kings. No, 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 but... He earned it for a good reason. So he earned his name through building churches and monasteries and building mints so that Poland produced its own coins. Ah. However, towards the end of his rule, he fell out with the Polish church and was excommunicated for adultery. Boleslaw retaliated by interrupting a mass and killing the bishop with a sword. (coughs) Following this, he then fled to Hungary, where he fell out with his hosts and was poisoned to death. That's a spectacular life right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the Julian Assange of the Middle Ages. Anyway, so several kings later came Boleslaw III. He divided up Poland between his sons according to the Testament of 1138. In 1226, the Duke of one of these regions was fighting pagans from Baltic Prussia and called on help from the Teutonic Knights, a religious order originating from the Holy Land. The knights defeated the pagans, but kept their lands, leading to centuries of warfare between the knights and Poland. And on top of this, the Mongols invaded for the first time in 1240. So yeah, there's a a lot going on back then. Poland would remain fragmented until 1295, when Duke Premsel II was crowned king. However, the pious kingdom wouldn't be fully restored until the reign of, wait for it, Vladislaw the Elbow High. Nice! who got his name because of how short he was. So height-wise, he'd only come up to most people's elbows. And people were shorter back then. They were, they were. So he was succeeded by his son, Casimir III, who ruled for 37 years, further extended the kingdom and earned the epithet The Great. Following his death and the end of the Piast line, Poland came under the rule of Louis I of Hungary, and Hungary and Poland were briefly united. It's all quite fluid back then, you know, yeah. one marrying everyone else. And... 
After this, Poland's long association with Lithuania would begin. The Grand Duke Dugela of Lithuania married King Jaguida of Poland in 1386. He adopted a Polish name, Wladyslaw II Jagielo, and he started the Jagiellonian dynasty. And the history of the Jagiellonian dynasty is rather complicated, with Poland fighting against the Ottomans and Crimean Tatars in the south, and the Grand Duchy of Moscow in the east. In 1569, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was officially brought into existence following the signing of the Union of Lubin. At its height, the Commonwealth covered an area of a million square kilometres and had a population of 11 million. The way it was run was very interesting, as after the last Jagiellonian king died, future kings were elected by the nobility. Oh. The first of these was Henry of Valois, who won the first of these elections in 1573. However, Henry inherited the French throne the next year, so he abandoned the Polish one, which is just so weird. It's like, oh, sorry, I can't be king of Poland anymore. I'm, I'm going to be king of France now. <laughs> double booked, double booked. It's like a, a king hierarchy, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was followed by Stephen Bathory, a Hungarian nobleman who was the uncle of Elizabeth Bathory, who was the most evil woman in history. I've but, heard of Elizabeth Bathory, actually. Yes. yes. I'm, I'm, I'm aware from true crime podcasts, mainly. Right, her, uh, yes. Her actions. Uh, yeah, I won't go into them now because they're a bit grisly, but this is, that's the time period we're talking about. So in order to win and maintain territory back then, you needed a strong armed force. And the Polish had possibly the coolest military unit in history, the Polish Winged Hussars. These guys were an elite cavalry force who wore resplendent wings on their back, kind of looking like angels on horseback. And they looked amazing and they're definitely worth looking up. In the early 17th century, the Commonwealth fought wars against Sweden and Russia, further expanding its territory. The Commonwealth fell into decline in the second half, with a Cossack uprising in the south. In the north, Sweden invaded in what has become known as the Swedish Deluge. Poland lost many territories in the north. Shortly afterwards, the nobleman Jerzy Lubomirski rebelled against the king, further destabilising the Commonwealth. The king, John II Casimir, fled to France. Towards the end of the century, Poland fought several wars with the Ottoman Empire, these wars would continue until 1720, causing a great loss in population and further damaging the Commonwealth. Later on, the Russians invaded and the Commonwealth effectively became a puppet state of the Russian Empire. In 1772, the first partition of Poland began. It was designed by Frederick II of Prussia in an attempt to placate Austria. Prussia, Austria and Russia all gained territory from Poland. Twenty years later, and following further war with Russia, the second partition of Poland occurred, with further territory being ceded to Prussia and Russia. And just a couple of years later, in 1795, the third and final partition occurred, and the remaining Polish territories were gobbled up by Prussia, Austria and Russia. Poland, as an independent country, ceased to exist, and it disappeared from the map. And this would be the case for over a century. So at the time of the First World War... Polish people from different regions found themselves on different sides of the conflict. Germany, which had only come into existence itself in 1871, sided with the Austro-Hungarian Empire to form the Central Powers. The Russian Empire was allied with Britain and France. Of course, the Allies won the war, but not only that, the powers that occupied Poland broke up. Germany went from being an empire to a republic. Austria-Hungary completely collapsed, and the Russian Revolution of 1917 deposed Tsar Nicholas II. Before signing the Treaty of Versailles, American President Woodrow Wilson, taking a break from writing love letters to Mrs. Grabapple, wrote 14 points for peace. Poland became an independent republic, but things were far from settled. At the time, the major Baltic port in Poland was Gdansk. It had a large German population, and it was known as the Free City of Danzig, Danzig being its German name. It served as Poland's main port, but under its own special administration. A little bit like Hong Kong, I suppose. A series of border wars broke out following the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, including ones with Czechoslovakia in the west and Ukraine and Lithuania in the east. 
Taking advantage of the Russian Civil War, Polish forces led by Joseph Pilsudski pushed further east into the Soviet Union. However, the Soviets fought back and pushed the Polish forces all the way back to Warsaw. A Soviet victory looked very much on the cards, but the Polish held out and unexpectedly won the Battle of Warsaw. Following this, Poland and the Soviet Union signed a peace treaty that established Poland's eastern border. Poland held democratic elections to its parliament in 1919 and adopted a constitution in March 1921. The new government had a host of issues to deal with. Because Poland was previously in separate countries, there was no centralised infrastructure. In 1922, Gabriel Narutowicz was made president by the National Assembly, but he was assassinated by right-wing extremists just five days into the job. In May 1926, Pilsudski staged a coup and overthrew the civilian government. He imprisoned opposition politicians, rigged an election in 1930, and held power until his death in 1935. During his time in charge, he signed non-aggression pacts with the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, stating that Poland faced no threats from the West or East. Oh dear. Yeah. A new constitution, the April Constitution, was adopted in 1935, which limited the powers of the Polish parliament, making the country more authoritarian. After Pilsudski's death, Poland would be run by his marshals, so it remained largely under military control. In the build-up to World War II, Nazi Germany annexed Austria in the Anschluss of 1938. Hitler then set his sights on Czechoslovakia, and the Western powers, including the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, set about trying to appease him. They agreed that Hitler could have the Sudetenland, a region at the German-Czech border that was largely populated by German speakers. Chamberlain flew back to Britain, exclaiming, Peace in our time. Of course, Hitler went way beyond this and took the whole country. And what's the lesson here? Don't appease fascists. A timely lesson. Yes, absolutely. The next country on the Nazi radar was Poland. Poland signed an alliance with Britain and France so that a Nazi invasion of Poland would lead to war. Shortly before the inevitable invasion, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union quickly signed the now infamous Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, a pact of non-aggression where they agreed to divide up Poland between them. On September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland and officially started the Second World War in Europe. The Soviets did not invade immediately, waiting until September the 17th to do so. Despite brave resistance, Warsaw fell to the Nazis on the 27th of September. Two days later, Nazi Germany and the Soviets signed the German-Soviet Frontier Treaty, formalising their borders within Poland. The heads of the Polish government and the top military officials fled the country to form a government in exile. First they went to France via Romania, and when France fell to the Nazis, they moved to London. Although Poland was quickly defeated by the Nazis and the Soviets, the government in exile continued to assist the Allies in whatever way they could. They organised the Polish resistance, contributed to the Allied Armed Forces, for example the 303 Fighter Squadron was famous during the Battle of Britain, and worked on cracking Nazi codes. In June 1941, the course of the war completely flipped when the Nazis launched Operation Barbarossa and invaded the Soviet Union. They took the Red Army by surprise and quickly made huge gains, including taking all of Poland. The Polish government in exile subsequently signed the sikorsky maisky Agreement, which allowed a Polish army to be formed in the Soviet Union to fight against the Nazis. However, these relations were broken off in 1943 when evidence of the Katyn massacre was uncovered. Soon after the Soviet occupation, around 22,000 Polish people were massacred by the Red Army, who subsequently tried to cover it up. From 1941, the Nazis began implementing Hitler's final solution in its occupied territories. In Poland, Jewish people were rounded up into the ghettos of the big cities. These ghettos were later liquidated, which euphemistically meant that the people in them were to be taken to concentration or extermination camps to be murdered en masse. April 1943 saw the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, when for a short period armed Jewish groups bravely held out against the might of the Nazis. In the end, around 3 million Polish Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Following the Battle of Kursk, the tide of the war in the east turned and the Soviets fought back against the Nazis, taking Poland and pushing on through Germany itself, before finally taking Berlin on May 2nd, 1945. With Hitler dead and the Nazis totally defeated, the map of Poland was redrawn. 
Following agreements at the Tehran and Yalta conferences, the Soviet Union got to keep the territories it captured in 1939, and by means of compensation, Poland was assigned the bulk of Silesia and Pomerania in the west, and the lower part of East Prussia and the port city of Danzig, once again becoming Gdansk, in the east. And it kind of sounds trivial now, you know, just for bigwigs drawing on a map, but it was a huge deal. Eight million Germans were evacuated or expelled from these territories, and around two million Polish people left the areas that had been assigned to the Soviet Union. You know, and this is just after the war finished, so, you know, people thinking, well, at least the fighting's over. But no, yeah, yeah, and many, many people died in, in that time. International relations of that sort are just, just strange. It's what they were getting back is not what they lost. No, it's not no. anywhere close to being it. In fact, it's a bigger problem because then you've got to, got to kind of bring in these other cultures mm. and these other areas that you you didn't possess before. Mm-hmm. That that just seems like a. I mean, I know nothing about international <laughs> diplomacy, as is quite clear by the fact that I work in pensions. But <laughs> um, it just seems deeply, deeply, fundamentally wrong. Yeah, yeah. East East Prussia was a very strange one because because before the war, East Prussia was sort of apart from the rest of Germany. It's it, it, it sort of like stuck down like a finger coming out of the Baltic. It looked really, really weird. And the top of and the top of it of the sea was a was a city called uh, Konigsberg. And when the Soviets took it, they renamed the city Kaliningrad. And it's part of Russia today. So up in the Baltics, you've got this really weird setup where you've got the Baltic countries, you've got Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, and you've also got this bit of Russia, which is apart from from the rest of Russia. Yeah. It's really, really odd. Politics-wise, the government in exile was pretty much completely ignored by Stalin and the Soviet Union. Instead, the Soviets formed the Provisional Government of National Unity, which was dominated by the Polish Workers' Party. An election in 1947 was rigged, cementing communist control. The next year, the Workers' Party and the Socialist Party, which wasn't particularly communist, moved to become the Polish United Workers' Party in a situation similar to what happened in the GDR when the two left-wing parties were merged. This was the ruling party of the newly proclaimed Polish People's Republic, which was intended by Stalin to be run along his socialist-Stalinist lines. The wartime leader, Władysław Gomułka, was originally in charge, but he declared that Poland would find its own road to socialism. He was then removed from power and imprisoned by the Soviets. Soviet repression continued with thousands executed and the Catholic Church persecuted. Things changed a bit after Stalin died in 1953. De-Stalinisation became official Soviet policy in 1956, and the repression in the Eastern Bloc lessened somewhat. In Poland, thousands of political prisoners were released. In October 1956, Gomułka became secretary of the party, and Poland went through some liberalisation. Collective farming was abandoned, rules around the Catholic Church were relaxed, and thousands of people who were displaced by border changes were repatriated. However, the Soviet influence was far from finished. The year before, members of the Eastern Bloc signed the military alliance known as the Warsaw Pact. At the time, the Polish army was second in size only to the Red Army in the pact. The late 50s and 60s saw a decline in the previous liberalisation. 1968 saw the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia, where the government led by Alexander Dubček attempted reforms which were unheard of in the East, including freeing the press. The Warsaw Pact countries, with the exception of Ceausescu's Romania of course, invaded and overthrew the government. Something similar happened in Poland, with academics and students protesting for change. The protests were cracked down on, and Gomulka blamed several Jewish academics. This sparked a wave of anti-Semitic violence against the remaining Jewish population, with about 15,000 of them leaving for Israel. By the end of the decade, the remaining border disputes were finally settled with the signing of the Treaty of Warsaw, with both of the Germanies recognising the Polish border. In 1970, a series of strikes and protests over food prices brought down Gromolka's government, and he was replaced by Edward Gierek. Gierek attempted to solve Poland's economic problems by borrowing heavily. Although it initially helped to improve living conditions, the borrowing put a strain on the economy. Civil unrest continued throughout the 70s. 
1978, a major event occurred that gave a huge boost to Poland's Catholics. Cardinal Karol Joseph Wojtyla became Pope John Paul II, becoming the first non-Italian pope in 455 years. Soon after his appointment, he made a trip to his homeland, and vast crowds turned out to see him. Is there any uh, any truth to the oft-repeated story that said Pope was a goalkeeper before he became Pope? <laughs> I haven't checked that. I haven't checked that. I'm convinced that that story was just invented so that people could come up with a joke. He was very good on crosses. <laughs> he might have been a goalkeeper, I don't know. So yeah, big, so so these vast crowds turned out to see him, and for someone growing up in communist Poland, being part of a big crowd would have been a novel thing, because the government would have been very keen to dissuade people from forming big crowds, because you know you didn't know what people were going to do in big crowds. The beginning of the 1980s saw economic stagnation and the rise of solidarity, led by Lech Walesa. It started in 1980 when the government once again attempted to raise prices because the extent of the foreign debt had reached $20 billion. Workers in the ports and the coal mines of Silesia responded with a general strike. On August 31st, 1980, Lech Walesa signed the Gdansk Agreement with the government that ended the strike and allowed the formation of trade unions. On September 17th, these unions merged to form Solidarity. The Soviets who remember at the time were led by Leonard Brezhnev of Big Eyebrows and Brezhnev Doctrine fame, blamed Gierek for the situation and replaced him as the leader of the Communist Party with Stanislaw Kania, who planned to impose martial law. Brezhnev wanted to invade Poland, but was warned against it by the USA and Kania himself. In December 1981, the government declared martial law, tanks were out on the streets and the leaders of Solidarity, including Lekwalesa, were arrested. Martial law remained in place until July 1983, when military rule was relaxed and Walesa released. It was around this time that Brezhnev died, and was succeeded by the moribund premierships of Antropov and Chinenko. <laughs> Gorbachev's Glasnost and Perestroika saw a general amnesty in Poland in 1986, and all remaining political prisoners were freed. At this point, the Polish government had failed to thwart solidarity, and it was a potent political force. With the government weakened and Eastern Europe facing revolution after revolution, the government sat down with solidarity in the round table negotiations of 1989. Elections were held in June that year, but 65% of the seats were reserved for the communists. Of the seats that were contested, the opposition won almost all of them, creating a constitutional crisis. In response to this, the office of the president was reinstated and the communist general Jaruzelski was appointed to the post. On the 19th of August, the President asked Solidarity to form a government, the first time since the end of the war that Poland had a non-communist government. It embarked on radical economic reforms, shifting Poland from a centrally planned to free market economy. These reforms were initially tough, with inflation hitting 900% for a short time. Once in power, the Solidarity-led government started to strip Poland of all remnants of communism. They adopted a new constitution that made no reference to a leading role for the Communist Party, and the country was renamed to simply the Republic of Poland. Its borders were agreed with the newly united Germany in November 1990, and the constitution was further amended to allow for a directly elected president. The election was won by Lech Walesa. On December 22, 1990, two days after Itchy, Scratchy and Marge was first aired, the last president of the Polish government in exile, Ryszard Kaczorowski, handed over the presidential seal to Walesa, officially returning the pre-1939 government to Polish soil and bringing the Polish government in exile to a close. Since then, Poland has become increasingly westernised. In 1999, Poland joined NATO, the very organisation that the Warsaw Pact was set up against. In 2004, Poland joined the European Union, completing Poland's journey from a Soviet puppet state to a Western democracy. Hurrah! There we are. Now, I've got fond memories of when Poland joined the EU, because a couple of years after that, um, I did my PhD, and, and there were a lot of Polish students in Manchester. And, you know, they, they were so friendly, and they, invited them to, and they invited me to their flat, and they cooked me a Polish meal, and, and we had some 
Borsch for starters, and they gave us lots of Polish treats, including what I can only describe as little Milky Way bars, and their name translated to bird's milk oh. in English, which was just really weird. But yeah, I, I remember thinking, you know, this, 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 this is really awesome. You know, we're, we're now in this u- union with this new country, and I'm talking to people from that country, and, you know, they're showing me all their stuff. And I remember roughly that time uh, uh, Polish beer was widely available in the UK, and Polish beer, for lager anyway, is very nice. And there's one brand which is called Lek. Yes. Probably my favourite of the Polish lagers, I would say. Mm. 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 Oh, and, you know, that takes it all the way back to that founding story. Because according to legend, the founder of Poland was called Lek. There we go. There we are. So we've gone right round in a circle, as we should. Yeah. And as usual, we've got legal thank for this. uh, (laughs) Fantastic. So that was Itchy and Scratchy in March and the end of the exile of the Polish government, or should I say the Polish government in exile, Mm -hmm. because there was also a Polish government that wasn't in exile, but you know all that because you've just listened. (laughs) Uh, If you'd like to correct any of our pronunciation, except mine, I don't care. If you'd like to correct any of Tom's pronunciation, please get in touch with us uh, at underscore retrospecticus. By the way, hello to Ian Tyrer if you're listening. Uh, or uh, drop us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. And we'll see you next time. We certainly will. Bye, everyone. Bye. The 13th of which declared that Poland should be independent and have access to the sea. Poland became an independent republic, but things were far from settled. At the time, the major politic... Poltic board. Poltic board. I'm sorry, were you talking to me? (laughs) Or is your Baltic port also called Bort? No, no, my my (laughs) my Bort is also on the Poltic. (laughs) Uh, That's going in the Christmas special. Right, keep it together. Okay.